As I grew up receiving communion, it was a mix of fear and fascination. It was, um, in my mind at least, it was apparent that there were two attitudes toward the table of the Lord. One was that we were just unaware of it. It was just something we did in our church. If I remember growing up, I think we did it every fifth Sunday. Uh, about four times a year, four or five times a year, um, followed by foot washing on Wednesday night, the lowest attended Wednesday of the year. Um, but there was, a, there was an unawareness, and there was, on the other side of the spectrum, there was a sense of there's something magical that went on, um, which wasn't healthy or right either. But there's something very beautiful in the middle. I want to tell you, I was, I was watching um, a religious channel, uh, not because I wanted to watch it, but my wife had it on, and I just passed through the room. And um, so there it was, the Hallmark Channel was on. And this is, this is what someone said. They said, flowers are like love. When you walk into the room and see flowers, everything comes to a halt. Just like whenever you see love, everything comes to a halt. And I started thinking, um, when you walk into a room, those flowers, you really do halt. You stop. Those flowers say, look at this. Look at this. These flowers are commemorating something that's beautiful and powerful. And I started thinking about that. That's really what we can say about communion, about the Lord's table. So what I want to do today... I want, I've given you a, a long sheet that you can use as a study sheet. We're not going to try to exhaust every point uh, on the sheet, but we do want to hopefully lay out something before you that can be a bit of a primer for us as one of the things that I believe the Lord has spoken to me is that the Lord's table is going to begin to take on a greater significance in our midst. Um, and I want to tell you this, don't be bullied by people that say, oh, we haven't done it right, or you don't do it right, or you need to do it this number of times or that number of times. The wrath of man never works the righteousness of God. Um, any, any critic can point out something flawed on our journey. And I just want to tell you, don't let somebody else ruin this journey of discovery for you. Uh, because this is, this is not the Lord standing over our head with an axe. This is a beautiful bouquet of flowers on the table that makes everyone who comes in the room stop and look and celebrate the love. Now, the text we want to read, now, as I said, there's going to be some repetition. There's going to be um, the same thing looked at from two or three angles today. We're not going to exhaust the teaching, but we want to put it out several ways so that you will be able to comprehend what God is trying to communicate to us. And this is what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Um, some translations um, and I think accurately so, which is given for you. And um, he said, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup 
after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now this was in the context of Passover. And for the Jew, uh, Passover is a beautiful celebration looking back to what the Lord had done for them. But now Jesus puts Passover on a new footing. And he says, I not only want you to remember what I have done for you, I want you to remember that all of the fullness of that Passover meal has come to bear on this night. And I want you to remember that I'm bringing my kingdom and I'm going to come again. But then he shifts gears a little bit. He said, this is noting the special significance of the Lord's table. Whosoever or whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and so drink of the cup. I, I, again, I grew up in a setting, this was not the teaching of, of my pastor or my church, but there was such a, a fear of uh, communion, the, the solemnity of communion, that I knew I, I, all my life, I knew of Christians that loved the Lord, but they never received communion. Never. Because they said, I'm just not sure I'm worthy. I had an aunt that came to the Lord late in life and she loved him deeply but she would never receive communion. And one of, the, one of my happiest moments was just before uh, she became ill and, and passed away, she agreed that she was, was, was not worthy in herself, but she began to partake of the Lord's Supper and it was a phenomenal blessing to her. Uh, the, the Bible doesn't say if you're not worthy, don't partake. It says don't partake in an unworthy fashion. Now, what does he say? If there's something in my life, confess it and then receive communion. Okay? Um, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And some translations don't know what to do with this. They say many of you are sick spiritually and you're asleep spiritually. That's not what the scripture says. There had been physical infirmity and even death as a result of disregarding the great moment of the Lord's table. Not that you partook because you were distracted, but because you didn't understand what was at work in communion and what communion was commemorating. And you failed to recognize the importance of fellow brothers and sisters. And that puts you down a road you don't want to go. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Now, there's a handful of things I want to talk about. Now, remember, I'm running through this. I'm like a, I'm like a guy that's just received a kickoff, and I'm trying to get to the other end, end zone, okay? So I'm going to try to keep moving. Um, but what are the reasons we celebrate the Lord's Supper? And perhaps I should start even further back than this. There may be some that are new to Christianity new to our church, and you say, well, I don't even know what the Lord's Supper is exactly. It's a celebration involving the cup, which represents the blood of Jesus. Some churches use grape juice, some 
uh, like our church because we, we're basically, a, uh, we, we believe total abstinence is the best route. Um, but we're certainly not critical of those that use wine. So either grape juice or wine is used in the cup symbolizing the blood of Jesus. We drink it. Uh, a piece of bread or a wafer is used to symbolize the body of Jesus that was sacrificed for us and we eat it. So we eat and drink together in a memorial service, a commemorative service, a powerful service, remembering what Jesus has done, remembering what he has promised to do in the future, and remembering that he is with us right now. So it's a, it's a ceremony. It's a religious ceremony. Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Well, number one, it's the commandment of Jesus. If we had no other reason, I've, I've got, you know, about seven here, but if that was the only reason, that would be enough. Jesus told us to do it, uh, and you can look that up. The second uh, reason that we do it is that it strengthens the body of Christ individually and collectively. Individually we're strengthened, but also collectively we're strengthened. It celebrates what he has done for us and looks forward to his return is the third reason. Number four, the Lord's table creates a strong bond of fellowship and camaraderie among believers. Number five, it provides opportunity for reflection and introspection. You remember it's a bouquet of flowers that causes all the activity to stop, to contemplate the love of God and the requirements of God. Uh, it's another way to teach new believers about Christ and our community. This is a teaching moment, just like water baptism, just like the dedication of an infant. The Lord's table teaches new believers about Christ and our community that we live in together. And finally, it teaches us the concept of unity. Paul would teach the Corinthians, don't do this haphazardly. Wait for everybody to come together. And uh, it teaches the concept of unity. Now, the second question we would ask, um, you know, the, the first question was, um, uh, why do we do it? The second question is, what is the significance of the Lord's Supper? Well, I think there are four things. Number one, it is an act of worship and expression of gratitude for what Jesus has done. I remember when Justin and I went to England a few years ago, I was speaking at a conference and uh, he went with me to promote SESL. And we went into Westminster Chapel. Um, it was not our church. We didn't know anyone there. But we got there just in time for what they do every day. And it was the Lord's Supper. And as we took communion together with the other congregants that had gathered, we realized that some of us were tourists. Some of us were people that had stopped for their lunch break to come and receive the Lord's table. But in the midst of the busiest perhaps part of London, um, there at Westminster Abbey, one of the busiest certainly, we found a little group of us, probably what, just in 25, 30 people that took time to just worship the Lord. Our backgrounds were different. I could tell some of our languages were different. Some of us uh, uh, choked on the communion because we were expecting Welch's and it was something else, you know. Um, but I realized in the moment of great activity, we had stopped to worship and express gratitude for what Jesus had done. It gives testimony uh, to our belief in the gospel. 
Um, some people looked at us that day in Westminster Abbey with, uh, if I said chapel, I didn't mean to say chapel, that's R.T.'s church. Westminster Abbey, Abbey is what I was trying to say. Um, some of us looked at us trying to figure out what it was. Some of us looked at, some of them looked at us with disdain. But it was a testimony in the midst of that cosmopolitan city to say, here we are from all over the world. We believe the message of the gospel. It ministers, thirdly, to us because it calls upon us to forgive one another to restore fellowship, and to repent for sins that grieve the heart of God. I tell you, we should never move past communion without reviewing bitterness and unforgiveness and uh, things that we've said and done that we ought not have said and done. And number four, it's an opportunity for us to serve one another as we receive the Lord's table together. The third thing, what are the names of the celebration? Now, um, there's one I didn't put on here uh, simply because I forgot it. Uh, but in, and then today, we, it has so many different connotations since the sexual revolution. But one of the most common names was, was love feast. Because when you came together and shared the meal, there was such an expression of love that uh, it was known as the love feast. Um, but more commonly used names, it's called the breaking of bread. Holy Communion, the Table of the Lord, which is one of my favorites. Um, it's also known as the Lord's Supper. And especially if you come from a liturgical background, you might know it as Eucharist. And Eucharist, uh, Eucharista is the Greek word, and it means literally thanksgiving. So Eucharist can speak of the celebration or the elements, uh, although different people have different distinctions. Usually the elements are referred to as communion because we receive communion, but we celebrate the Eucharist. We give thanks and, and celebrate what God has done. What's number four? Don't you wish I'd go through the outline this quickly each week? Please don't say amen. If, if you said amen, please bring me a gift card after the service. And, We'll call it even. <laughs> Number four, what are some important themes we want to remember during communion? Well, here's the first one. We remember the new covenant. Now, remember, we've talked about this a lot lately because it's a big deal in Christianity. We don't have an Old Testament that is replaced. We don't have an Old Covenant that is disregarded. No, everything that was in the Old Testament served in an example for us it was the rules that led up to the principles. You know, it, it, before we understand principles, we often understand rules. So we have the rules that are expressed in principles in the New Testament. And Jesus' view of the Old Covenant is that He had not come to do away with it. In fact, He said, that is not why I came. He came to complete it. He came so that the Old Testament made sense. But we celebrate, uh, when we say the New Covenant, what we're doing is we're celebrating the completion of what God began so long ago. So there's the New Covenant. Uh, another theme is remembering, remembrance, His sacrifice, what He's done for us, <coughs> His promises. Thirdly, it's a time of thanksgiving. Fourthly, a time of fellowship and unity. Uh, fifthly, a time of separation from sin. It's a time that we look forward to the Lord's return. And finally, it's just a reminder, it's just a pointing, 
but it reminds us of the glories of heaven where Jesus said, when I sit down with you in the kingdom, when I sit down with you in heaven, this thing will take on greater significance. Passover was this, but communion takes on greater significance. But one day in heaven, even what we participate in now will take on greater significance. Okay, let's talk fifthly about the bread and the wine. Now, there are four or five views, and I'm not doing this to try to get you a, a gold star in Christian ed. I just want you to understand what some of the differences are and why, among some people, these differences are such a big deal. You can go to some churches of Christianity, and because you're not a member of their church, you won't be allowed to receive communion. Um, and it's not because they hate us. It's because they have a different view of the Lord's Supper than we do. And they basically view it as your protection. They view it as your protection in some churches. Some of them view it as unless you agree with us, you're not going to have fellowship with us. But I wanted you to, to listen with me for about four or five minutes as we try to understand why churches have different views on the Lord's table. Um, the first view is the view of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, generally Orthodox uh, Christians in the East, some Anglicans. And this is called transubstantiation. Now guys, I know that whatever view you hold, I know that every view here I'm treating with a broad stroke of the brush. And I'm not trying to go in intimate detail to try to explain all the nuts and bolts of every view. I do understand it, and I don't mean to be dishonoring to anybody. But um, basically, transubstantiation, you'd get it from the word trans. It goes with the idea of change. Something changes from this to that. Now, uh, those that embrace transubstantiation do not believe that the physical substance of bread and wine change, but they believe that in a spiritual sense, there is a change that takes place as you partake, and the bread becomes literally the body of Jesus, and the blood becomes, or the uh, cup becomes literally the blood of Jesus. Um, the spiritual substance is the body and blood of Jesus. There's the idea of change, although those that embrace transubstantiation don't think that the moment it disappears behind your gums, it changes to something else. They say in a spiritual realm, this bread is no longer bread, it's the body of Jesus. Um, they think of verses where, like where Jesus said, I am the uh, bread of life. And they believe that we are literally partaking, in a, literally in a spiritual sense, we're partaking of the actual body and blood of Jesus. Um, the Lutherans weren't quite comfortable with that. So they came up with a view that we call our terms consubstantiation. Now trans means to change, con means with or, or alongside. You know, Congress is a gathering of people. Um, I'm, I'm hearing comments, but I won't, I, we won't put those on the tape. Um, uh, but the Lutheran view is also held by the Lutherans, of course, and by some Anglicans. It's similar to transubstantiation, but what they teach is not that this changes to this. They say this and this exist co uh, coincidentally side by side. There's the physical dynamic and there's a spiritual dynamic, but they exist together. It's not very different from transubstantiation except this. Consubstantiation says that the elements don't change in any measure. There are two worlds that stand side by side. The instrumental view is the view of John Calvin. 
held by uh, a lot of reform groups like Presbyterians and others, um, and some Anglicans, some Baptists. In this view, there's no change in the wine and bread at all. The emphasis is not Christ entering the element, but rather that we become spiritual takers of what the elements represent. One preacher put it this way, instead of Jesus coming down into the elements, we are taken up into what the elements represent. And you can understand why people embrace all of these views. The fourth view, similar to Calvin in some ways, is called the memorial or symbolic view. This was the view that was presented by Zwingli. If you were reading the church history notes, many Baptists, most Pentecostals, most Evangelicals, in fact in America most non-denominational churches as well as some Anglicans. Essentially what this says is that the elements have no special presence. There's nothing special about the bread or the cup except that it has been consecrated for this purpose. But they are used to help us remember, observe, proclaim, and worship. Now that's called the memorial view. If you were a Protestant um, from a non-reformed non point of view or non-liturgical point of view, this is probably what you were taught. There's a, there, it's a memorial view we remember. But now within this group, and this is what I think we are, at least it's what me and Jesus are. Within this latter group, there are many Christians, and usually they are Pentecostals, who believe that communion is symbolic. In other words, we don't believe that there is anything mystical or magical or even supernatural about the bread and the cup. But we do embrace a unique and powerful sense of a special, solemn presence that is attributable to the Holy Spirit, not to the elements. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to pick a fight with anybody, but we don't believe that the mystical power is found in the cup or the bread. We believe that for reasons he understands, God has anointed the thing called communion with a special significance and a special presence and a special power, so much so that Paul says to ignore what God has placed alongside this idea of communion. To ignore that can result in even physical damage. But we believe it is a special anointing of the Holy Spirit. Don't take time to look at it now, but you can write down Luke 5, 17. There's a verse that is unique among a lot of verses, most of the verses of the Gospels. And this is what it says. It says, Jesus was in a house praying for people. And when he was there, this is what the scripture says, the presence, or excuse me, the power of the Lord was present to heal. Now, I realize there's some, does that mean he was the power of the Lord or the power of the Lord was with him or was the power of the Lord there in a special way? I think there's pretty good reasons to believe this. On this occasion, the power of the Lord was present in a special way to heal. Now, I think what that may imply, it may infer, is that there are times the presence of the Lord isn't with us in that way. You all know what it's like to go into a church where you're there and you feel the Lord, but you're thinking about Denny's. But you also know what it's like to go into a service or a you know, a small group gathering where you just walk in the door and it's something that just takes your breath away. You, you realize there's a presence here. 
I remember the first time I walked in Times Square Church in New York City. I just wanted to see it. I wasn't thinking in terms of, of, of anything spiritual necessarily except to say, Lord, thank you for what you've done through this great man of God in this church. But I remember when I walked into the um, uh, door unexpectedly, there was a power and a presence. Like have you ever walked in from a hundred degree day into a building that's really cooled down and it's just like, whoo, that's the way I felt in the spirit. And I realized that even though my mind was just on telling my friends, hey, I saw David Wilkerson's church, I realized that in a special and powerful way, I walked into the presence of the Lord. Unexpected, unlooked for, unsought for, yet I was overwhelmed with the sense of God's presence. And loved ones, when that happens, we ought to cherish those moments. We ought to celebrate those moments. And I'm here to tell you that communion, when it finds its proper place in our midst, we will find that at the Lord's table, there is a special power of God present to heal, to help, to comfort. There's something about communion that's not true of every other time we gather if we're interpreting these passages right. Now, um, number six, how should we understand the significance of communion? Some use the word sacrament. Some use the word ordinance. Let me give you again a Two-minute education. Sacrament is from the Latin word sacramentum, which means sacred oath. In the Catholic and Orthodox tradition, the word refers to practices through which the Lord imports, imparts special grace to His people. In liturgical churches, you may have as many as seven sacraments listed. And um, while some churches list several actions as sacramental, most Protestant churches who use the phrase say we have two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper are truly sacramental. But most Protestants prefer the word ordinance. Um, and an ordinance is defined this way. An ordinance is, for, is the term used by churches that shy away from the idea of sacraments. The word most often used is, is ordinance among these churches. And they see these events as ordinances, not sacraments, because the emphasis is not on special grace that is dispensed, but is on an opportunity to express our faith in an observable way. In other words, grace is attached to these things, but not in a special way. God could do the same thing in many other instances of life. Now, this is the thing about an ordinance. And this is why we use the phrase ordinance in our church instead of sacrament. Not because we think sacrament is wrong, but we think sacrament can be easily misunderstood. We use the word or ordinance for this reason. We believe that water baptism, we believe that child dedication, we believe that communion are commemorative. They celebrate something that has already taken place. When a parent brings a child for baby dedication, like they're going to do next Sunday, that is very significant and we recognize the moment. We do recognize the moment, but we understand that those parents are doing publicly what they've already done privately. 
When someone gets into the baptismal tank, that's a very important thing to do. It's an act of obedience. And we're going to talk about believer's baptism in a few weeks. It's important that we be baptized in water as the Lord commanded. But that baptism in water is talking about a death, a burial, and a resurrection, something that has already happened in the life of that person. They don't go into the tank a sinner and come out a saint. The same with communion. God has already paid the price. He purchased the church with his own blood. He has already sustained us and kept us. He's already told us about the promise. But this is a reminder of what has happened and that we ought to live it out. All three of those uh, ordinances, if you want to call them that, uh, if you want to call child's dedication an ordinance, all of those speak of what has happened and speak to the significance of the moment. But all of them have to be lived out. Okay, now you sound, you sound very quiet, which usually means I'm doing so good it's unbelievable or I have hopelessly lost you. So let's move on to number seven. You're smarter though, you, you, I'm sure you're getting it. Number seven, let's ask some practical questions as we try to move toward the act of communion itself. Um, number one, why is communion important? We said that it, it's a command of Jesus. It refocuses our faith. It requires reflection and repentance. There may be things in your life and mine that you've just been too busy to deal with all week, but when you come to the table and see the flowers, it requires reflection and repentance. And number four, it reminds us of the importance of unity. I want to just say this. Um, I'm going to speak next week about what it means to be an encourager. I think we would be surprised at how important unity is to the Lord for his people. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed specifically for three things as he was going away. He prayed for our security, he prayed for our purity, and the third thing he prayed for was our unity. That's why the devil would rather start a church fight than sell a truckload of whiskey. We've got to understand how important unity is. We've got to understand how important it is that we make every effort to walk in unity. And communion does that. I'm not trying to get in the next week ahead of time. Or maybe I am, but I shouldn't let myself. Okay, how often should we partake? Um, and and or people get angry with you on this. Um, um, it, it, first of all, it emerged from the Passover setting. So the context of communion is that it's periodic. Now, now that's not an ironclad argument. You can't say because the Passover was set at a particular time, communion should be set at a particular time. But don't be surprised with folks that don't observe it every week. And you might say, well, that's periodic. Well, I understand what you're saying. But the Old Testament church understood special days and special seasons. And I don't think there's anything wrong with saying on these days we will observe communion. The, the emphasis is that it be done regularly. The fact of the matter is the scriptures do not give instruction regarding frequency. You can play words with, uh, play games with words and phrases, but it, it does not give instruction regarding frequency. It does appear, however, that the early church celebrated almost every time they were together, though we're not certain of the frequency with which they received the Lord's Supper. We know that they met daily in homes. Did they receive communion daily? We don't know. We know they met in other settings. We know that um, by we know that at least by the early to mid 40s they were in the custom of coming together at least weekly um, in homes or in other places by riversides, other places. 
the frequency will probably depend on our understanding of the nature of the Lord's Supper. In other words, if you come from a, um, from a Catholic background, you're going to receive communion every time you have a service because of what they believe about the nature of communion. If you are from a Baptist or, or Pentecostal background, you're going to say it's important to do, but we don't have to do it every time we come together. Um, what I would encourage you to do is receive it when you have opportunity and, and stop picking fights with those with whom you disagree. That is so against the spirit of communion and the spirit of the Lord's table. Um, um, I know when we came to the table fighting, mother sent us to our rooms. If it was really bad, she'd make us kiss each other. Some might ask, at what age is communion permitted? Some churches say 12, some churches say 9, some say, you know, some other age. Let me encourage you this way. I, I say the same thing about communion that I say about water baptism. Now, our friends in the Catholic Church and other liturgical churches, they do something very helpful. They have a catechism that you go through before you receive your first communion. And in fact, uh, I, I don't want to scare anybody, but I've started writing a catechism. It's probably going to take me a couple of years to get through it. I, I, want, I want us, not that you can't join the church so you go through catechism, but I want us to have a tool that we can really help our children understand what we believe and why. And I admire churches that, that take the, the, the converts through catechism. But in the spirit of that, I don't think that we need to say it's at this age you can receive communion any more than I think we should say it's at this age you receive baptism. I grew up being told that you weren't of the age of accountability till you were 12. It was based on Jesus being in the temple asking questions at 12. I remember the confusion I had one night. I was under the hot you know, the white hot conviction of the Holy Ghost to give my heart to Jesus and repent of my sins. But I was only nine. And I thought, well, does this even count until I turn 12? Well, thank God the Holy Spirit pushed me beyond my understanding. And um, my church wasn't actually teaching you had to be 12, but they were saying Jesus had an awareness at 12. So when you're 12, you can have an awareness. But I will tell you this, if your children can explain to you what it means to follow Jesus... I don't think that's too early for communion if they can explain communion back to you. The same thing with baptism. Um, when your children understand baptism, if they want to be baptized, I encourage you to let them be baptized. You say, well, what if they, Pastor, he's only five years old. What, he'll understand it better later. That's right, but you don't want to send a message to a five-year-old that says, oh, that's right, you've asked Jesus into your heart, but let's just wait and see if it takes. Or let's wait until you you know, till you understand it better. Um, I, one of my children I baptized twice at age five, and I think it was age nine. At five, he wanted to give his heart to the Lord, and he said, you said that Christians should be baptized. I explained baptism to him. I said, now you tell me what it means to be a Christian, and you tell me what it means to be baptized. He did it, and I baptized him at five years of age. But when he was about nine, he said, Daddy, I, if I can do this, I understand better than I did. Can I be baptized again, understanding what I understand now? And I thought, that's beautiful. And I was so glad that four years earlier, I didn't tell him he couldn't partake. Now, that's between you and your child. And when you come into this service 
uh, your child will be offered. I mean, you know, a lap baby's a little different. They'll take the whole tray. But um, your child is welcome to receive communion, but it's up to you as the parent. Uh, and then we'll let you explain to them too. Don't, don't line up and say, we need to see Justin and, and uh, you know, a little six-year-old grab him by the collar and say, why was I denied communion? We don't want to do that. But we understand that it's a matter of understanding rather than a matter of age. We need to, uh, as we receive communion, we need to move uh, in, into this idea of worship and celebration. Now, how do we, let's, let's wrap it up with this. How do we uh, embrace the table of the Lord? Well, let's look at it before, during, and after. Before the Lord's Supper, we are to examine ourselves to be sure we're in the faith. And if there's anything there that is unpleasing to the Lord, we confess it and ask Him to forgive it. We repent and then we continue with communion, moving into worship and celebration. That's before. During the Lord's Supper, we eat and drink together. Now, people ask me, is it okay to have communion alone? Um, I don't think there's anything that prohibits you receiving communion alone but you need to understand that that is the exception and that's not the norm it uh it should be done cautiously i've done it for instance there were 30 days i felt like the lord had called me to some conditional fasting and and special prayer and one of the things he put in my heart to do was to receive communion every day um and i've, I've done that i know that uh um, there are some people I've known that in their quest for healing, part of their quest for healing was to receive the Lord's table and they did it by themselves. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I think we need to understand those are, um, those are the exceptions, not the rule. Communion is designed from beginning to end to be enjoyed together. Um, but at any rate, uh, we eat and drink together and as a token act performed individually, um, in, in other words, when we come together today, we are, we are doing what we call a token act. We are not having a meal together, but we are having elements of the meal. Um, uh, there are, um, uh, there's the other dynamic where we eat and drink together. There are some churches that communion is the last bite and the last sip of a meal that they have together. We tried it here, but people complained. They said, I just, with pizza on the table, I just can't get in the mindset for communion. It was so alien to us, we, ne we never tried it again. But remember, the first communion was part of a meal. It was part of the meal set apart. And what we do is we take the part set apart. Then after the Lord's Supper, what do we do? We remember what He did. We remember what He's doing at this moment. We remember what He promised to do in the future. We worship as we go forth to serve the Lord. Now, you're about to be served, but let me touch on four Christian life lessons before the worship team comes and we begin to worship together. Number one, loved ones, do not treat the Lord's table as a place of magic or strange spirituality. Now, I agree, it is one of the most spiritual moments of life. But don't treat it like a good luck charm. You know, Israel sent the ark into battle in order to make the Lord go with them. They were corrupt, they were wicked, and they treated the ark of the Lord like a good luck charm. And the army of Israel was defeated, and the ark of the Lord was taken captive by Philistia. 
So don't treat the Lord's table as a place of magic or strange spirituality. I had someone say one time, and, and I'm not trying, nobody in this church, this was decades ago, but I had a teenager say, uh, this was my first communion today. And I said, well, that's wonderful. And um, I, I was like youth pastor at the time. And, and they said, well, I, I know there's healing here. And I was thinking maybe it would help me with my acne. And they were dead serious. They thought this is like a charm and it'll make right what's wrong with me you know, or what's bothering me. Don't do that, loved ones. Understand, secondly, that it is a serious moment. It is a very serious moment. And number three, at the same time, understand that it's a celebratory moment. It is a celebratory moment. Sort of like your marriage vows. Um, we, have a, we have a tendency to just celebrate marriage, but we've got to remember that whenever we get to kiss the bride and, you know, go off to reception, we've got to remember we've just promised to do something so difficult that we swear to God we'll do it and call on people to be witnesses. It's, it's great solemnity, but it's great celebration. Understand finally that it's a moment God seems to have set aside for special grace, mercy, and peace. I can't understand it all. I can't explain it all. There are so many things about serving Jesus we can't adequately explain. But I tell you what we can do. We can embrace the flowers. We can stop everything to see the bouquet, to celebrate the love. And what I want to do in particular today is ask you to open your heart and let communion begin to be something special. I know that many of us have, if not all of us, I don't know, maybe second service is messages for, I don't know. But wherever your understanding of the Lord's table is, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will raise it up.